0: makers of sport podcast episode 15 with matt stevens Welcome to episode 15 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Today, I'm happy to welcome an inspirational friend of mine, an independent designer, illustrator, speaker, and all-around creative tinkerer from Charlotte, North Carolina, Matt Stevens. Matt is well-known in the mainstream design world outside of the sports industry, working with clients such as Facebook, Pinterest, Evernote. Sony Music, and more. However, he has done a lot of design illustration work in the sports industry as well for the likes of uh, the WWE, Nike, ESPN, the Magazine, and the NBA. Matt is also a big advocate of personal projects, and a few years ago, he launched the Max 100 Project which was actually where I discovered him. And uh, the Max 100 Project was a successfully funded Kickstarter campaign, which included a book and uh, posters of 100 Nike Air Max 1 illustrations in different visual styles. I'm a big fan and admirer of Matt and his story, and I'm fortunate to be able to hang with him again. And uh, I got to know him about a year ago uh, in Lexington when I brought him in to speak to a local creative group. Welcome to the show, Matt. It's good to catch up with you again. Hey man, it's great to be here. Uh, so a lot, a lot has changed in our past since the last, last time we hung out. Specifically in my direction, I was actually working uh, at a, uh, a small web design company. What's, what's been going on your way? <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, just continuing to try to figure out the, uh, working on my own thing. You know, I've been doing this, uh, coming up on, it'll be three years and, uh, had always been, uh, in agencies and so I was a creative director at a small agency. And so just trying to figure out the whole, uh, workflow, cash flow, uh, dealing with clients kind of doing it all. So
0: it's going well and I'm staying busy and, um, yeah, so very cool Hanging man in there yeah that's awesome so I, I did give a bit of a brief introduction but um if you could maybe just go a little bit more in depth in your background tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and how you got to where you are today
1: sure yeah i um you know i think a lot of people in design and illustration have a similar story i've i've been doing the conference circuit recently, and it's interesting how many, how much um, commonality there is. And I think, you know, like a lot of people, I grew up just very early, loving to draw, loving to um, do all kinds of, you know, visual things, and was one of those kids that just drew on any scrap of paper that I could find. And um, just from an early age, I just always knew that I kind of wanted to to do something and in this field. And I remember, I don't know, it was like a church or something like a local church was having like a, a logo contest. And I was like, what's a logo? I remember asking my parents what a logo was. And I remember some that uh, them describing it to me and it just seemed to make a ton of sense. I was like, Oh yeah, that's cool. Like uh, creating a symbol for a thing, you know, it's almost like a superhero or something. Um, and so just progress on from that kind of in high school, started to take to it. And, uh, just uh, really loved it. And I remember starting to just try to figure out ways to, to draw things for school projects. I'd always try to work something in. And so when it was time to go to college and stuff, I just always knew that this is kind of what I wanted to do. And so I studied uh, graphic design and illustration in college, not really sure which direction I was going to head in and then kind of decided I actually wanted a steady paycheck. And so I went with the design route and um, bounced around your typical kind of like crummy jobs right out of school had you know jobs that lasted two years, one year, two years, and then um, the company that I spent almost uh, twelve years at was where I where I learned a lot, and I started there as senior designer, and then um, was creative to work my way up to creative director there. Uh, and I would you know I think over time just the ebbs and flows of agency life started to wear on me a little bit and the ups and downs of hiring people and the economy would be bad and then you'd have to let a bunch of people go. And um, I just was in a really bad kind of headspace and uh, about, you know, four years ago, and I just started doing a lot of personal projects. Like I started um, sort of channeling some of my frustration into making the kind of work that I wanted to make. At the time, it didn't make a lot of sense. Like I didn't really like, why am I doing this? But it was just, I'm just gonna work on things that I'm interested in to be honest, some of it was just kind of a fear for my job. You know, I, I didn't have a website that I felt like really represented who I was or who I wanted to be or the kind of work I wanted to do. And so I figured the only way to, to have a, have a portfolio that looked that way was to just do it. So a lot of the stuff I was doing was not client work. It was just, you know, things for myself. So yeah, that the, the free, the amount of freelance work started to grow and really started to crowd into my life. I had three kids and it was, I felt like I was at a crossroads, like I had to do something because I was, you know, working crazy hours at nights on the weekends, doing a full-time job, you know, trying to be there for my family. And um, it was around that time, I felt like I had to make a decision that I actually got a fairly substantial restaurant project that was putting me on retainer for like six months. And then I also got a uh, offer from Facebook to come out there for 90 days. So I went out to quit my job, went out to Facebook for three months, was working on this restaurant project at night and on the weekends and just, you know, working a ton knowing that this was kind of the best opportunity I was ever going to get, you know, to kind of, to go out on my own. So I figured I'd either love Facebook, take a job, or I, um, you know, maybe it wasn't a good fit, but I'd at least make some good contacts and I'd built myself a little bit of a cushion with all the work I was doing. So it ended up being the latter. And I, um, Really love my time at Facebook. It wasn't really a great fit or a time for us to, you know, pick up and move across the country. I'm East Coast. And uh, so, yeah, I've been on my own since then. And that's kind of what's brought me to today.
0: So, did you find when you started uh, sort of breaking out and doing these personal projects while you were at your your sort of long time job? Mm-hmm. Did you find that because it was new work or, or the type of work that you weren't necessarily doing on a day to day basis, did it was it like good, you know, like, or was it just like you weren't very satisfied with it and you had to keep making it in order to get better?
1: So, was the quality good? Is that what yeah, you're yeah, asking? yeah,
0: yeah? Since it was like a different style of work,
1: um. I guess. I don't know. I mean, at the time there was such a freedom to it. It was so much freer and different than what I was doing. Um, the company I was at, we were, uh, had a lot of clients in like industrial and manufacturing. So it was to be honest, pretty boring work. And so there was something exciting and challenging about the new stuff I was doing. Um, the illustration stuff, I guess, I was a little surprised by that, but to be honest, my struggle in college was always finding the right medium. Like I really struggled with uh, the work I was doing. I'd actually lot, I actually did a lot of um, sports related art in college. I thought I was going to be one of these kind of like, you know, sports artists. It was a, it was a very different kind of style at that time, sort of the collage, like, you know, the athlete's head and then something going on over here and something over there. Right. Um, so, I always struggled to sort of to find a medium that would pop. And so then I left that behind, you know, for a good, what, 15 years, 10, 15 years. So when I came back to illustration, I had all these digital tools that I didn't I hadn't really had the level that I had in college. So it was kind of refreshing. It was like, wow, I I sort of solved that problem of what medium do I work in? Like working primarily, primarily digitally was great for me. Like I really was able to have more control. much more matched my workflow. And so, yeah, I would say there was some, it took a little while to, you know, ramp up, but um, not as long as I expected. And I think a lot of that has to do with the what I learned in college and then kind of picking it back up. The tools were better or at least suited me better.
0: Got it. Got it. So, yeah. So, so I think now that a lot of people probably view you, um, as more of like an illustrator and maybe doing a little bit of branding work as opposed mm-hmm. to kind of the corporate type work that you're doing at your own job. The reason why I asked that question is because I see a lot of people that are wanting to kind of do work specific to the sports niche. And, um, you know, a lot of times, especially with visual identity and sports, it kind of has this sort of, uh, look. Sure. And so, so for some people, it's tough to kind of, they'll, they'll try to switch paths in their career and, and, uh, to achieve that, it, it just tends to take a lot of practice. So, uh, so you're a bit of a sneakerhead, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> is that, uh, that's a relative term though. You know, yeah, we no, can, no, no, we can totally. talk about that. We can talk about that. There's
0: degrees of sneakerheads. Yeah, but I'm see, there's, a sneakerhead. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's the whole hype beast thing, which is like buying everything like the Yeezys and all this stuff. Right. And, and I, uh, so I, I, I love shoes, uh, like yourself. And, but my thing is that I'm not just going to purchase something because it's like all hyped up on whatever, right. you know what I'm saying? Go wait in line. Like I get the things that I like, you know, right. even oh, if absolutely. people outside don't like them. And th- for me, that's the purest form of being a sneakerhead right? right. Um, I mean, you were always drawing and stuff as a kid. Was there anybody, uh, any bit of that that sort of led to your design career? Cause for me, I wanted originally just love drawing shoes. Like that was it. I, I mean, I yeah. thought I was going to be a shoe designer.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I I think for me, I've had to dig back into this uh, for some of the talks that I've given and kind of figure out how this happened. And I think for me, so I grew up in Florida, and then I moved to Asheville, North Carolina when I was like 11 years old. So I grew up. I kind of consider Asheville, North Carolina, where I grew up. So it's not a tiny town, but our house um, was near the Blue Ridge Parkway, kind of we were up on the side of a mountain, we had like six acres. And so I grew up not in a neighborhood with other kids, but it was actually, it was a cool place to grow up, but it was fairly isolated. So that just kind of gives you the setting. Now I love sports. I was in no way like an athletic kid, like I was a chubby kid and it just wasn't, you know, I wasn't that good at it, but I loved it. I loved, you know, playing stuff. So when Nike came around and they started to kind of blow up, that was like my formative years. And I was, um, I would say like Agassiz was more the thing that I was interested in before Jordan. I mean, eventually, you know, Jordan came around, but just like the whole rock and roll tennis thing. And um, I was learning to play tennis at that time and his whole image. And, but I was fascinated by, I couldn't have articulated at the time, but I was fascinated by the way Nike built this mythology around their athletes. And then how they tied in the product. So, you know, I remember when the air tech challenges came out, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever, you know, and I, and I would save my money and I'd go buy those and, um, just, you know, then by the time I was in college, that was when Bo Jackson was in full swing and all of his trainer, you know, the whole, uh, cross training thing, it was in full swing. Jordan was, you know, huge, um, so that stuff was just amazing to me because it was it was like the the three legs of this, you know, table. It was like the athletes were amazing, what Nike was doing with the story and the commercials and all the branding around them and then the product itself, you know, was absolutely the coolest thing ever. You know, I mean they were way ahead of what anybody else was doing. And so I think that's what hooked me in kind of more than anything was just kind of that whole package that probably had a huge part to my interest in design and so these things kind of became like a totem for me like these you know these objects were just the shoes kind of encapsulated everything that they had built I'm sure that you know obviously that was their plan and it worked on me but that's what really kind of hooked me in uh to that whole world and I think that's what sort of created my love particularly for Nike I mean I I love sneakers in general but you know I'm fairly brand loyal to Nike I just nothing else to me kind of um, scratches that itch the way they do.
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of a common common thread. I, they for for me they tend to be just with the focus on great design. They tend to be like the apple of of that industry, and and that's sort of what draws me to them. But but I will say, uh, Under Armour has really started to come on. Maybe not so much in the sneaker mm-hmm. aspect, but they're like you can go into like say a Dick's Sporting Goods right now, and I've found myself sort of moving closer towards their section, especially from like the apparel side, just some of the uh, flashy type type things that they're doing. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, and it'll, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, I don't know if you heard that Adidas just hired away three really top tier yeah. designers. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Because from what I've heard, they're actually uh, creating a studio in Brooklyn with those guys, and it's going to be much more streetwear focused. So it'll be really interesting to see Yeah, that, uh, that feels like a a blow for Nike. I'm sure it's something they can handle, but I'm anxious to see what those guys come up with.
0: Yeah, I I agree, man. Of course the thing with Nike is everybody wants to work there. They they can, they can find especially like the newest up and coming talent, but, but that industry, people move around like crazy. I mean, if you just look at people's, uh, LinkedIn profiles that work at these places, I mean, they're like, you know, at New Balance and then they go to Adidas and then they go to Nike and they sort of just like float around. But Adidas streetwear brand has always done pretty well. I mean, their lifestyle brand
1: yeah yeah no absolutely that's why i'm i'm interested to see how these guys because you know um, the guys that they have, Mark Minor is the, you know, the free runs are some of my favorite things that Nike's done. Like the free run twos are probably my favorite. So when I say I'm a sneakerhead, I'm really much more into like the runners. Like I like the right. running shoe side. Um, I love all the retros. I mean, I appreciate all of it, but, you know, I'm an older guy. I can't pull off the Jordans anymore. I don't think. So I'll try to do that anymore. And I'm not going to wear like some Bo Jackson's, you know, blue and orange Bo Jackson's. But the runners are cool because I can still wear those to work and I can still wear them around and and not feel like a clown, but but Mark Minor, I mean, he was the guy that really started the whole free run thing, which has been huge. And the free run twos are, you know, I have like four pairs of those. Those are like my favorite. Yeah. Ever. So yeah, I mean it's Adidas has always been strong in streetwear. That's why it'll be really interesting to see how these guys steer it or, you know, what their focus is so yeah, I'm anxious to see what happens. That and it was interesting, you know, it was crazy that it happened all at the same time. Like right. they went and plucked these three guys, you know, right at the same time. So right, uh, it's kind of oh. like building your own dream team.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so actually, um, in uh, early 2015. Um, I'm having a guy on who is a sneaker business analyst and, oh, uh, oh, wow. and, yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see, like, cause he, he studies this stuff very close and, uh, he's, I saw where, um, recently, I guess, Under Armour overtook Adidas as like the second most valuable sports, oh. uh, a brand in, uh, in the U S.
1: I believe it. I mean, I, you know, I have kids that range from six to 13 and that age range is, you know, Under Armour everywhere. I don't know why it's so much with the younger kids. Uh, yeah. But I mean, that's what a lot of kids, you know, younger kids before teenage years, maybe even in teenage years, it just really seems like they're attracted to Under Armour. Yeah.
0: You, you know, I was actually that was actually in my head to say next just purely from eye research. It's yeah. a lot of kids are, are, I mean, outside of like maybe their favorite teams, like around here, obviously it's the university of Kentucky, which is a Nike school, but yeah. a lot of these guys are wearing, uh, these kids are wearing under armor and I wonder if it has something to do with the whole superhero thing. Like, my son has some Superman Under Armour socks.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a really smart play on their part, for sure. I mean, we have Cam Newton here in town. Right. And obviously, huge. He's kind of become the football face of Under Armour. And, you know, he's had all these crazy, like, Superman cleats, Batman cleats. And so they're really... Definitely, really smart to go after it in that way. Now, I don't allow any Under Armour in my house, obviously. But, you know,
0: brand, brand loyalty, man, <laughs> brand loyalty. Um, so, so I want to kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive on your Max One Hundred project. So, uh, th- the reason why I wanted to kind of talk about your passion for sneakers is, is obviously because of this. Where did, uh, where did that idea come from, and and sort of what, uh, what motivated you to to jump right in and start that? Were there some things that you're doing before that maybe kind of Pushed you towards that direction as far as like sneaker related things?
1: Yeah. I mean, the one project that most people haven't seen because I don't really talk about it that much and I don't really have it. I don't have it. in My portfolio is I actually went back through uh, all the sneakers that I had owned and drew them as a way of just like getting comfortable with illustration. So I uh, went back through and actually made a little mental timeline. I wrote it down of all the Nike sneakers that I had owned and I illustrated them, but it was in kind of a consistent style. And, uh, that's how it's, that's how the idea started. It was just, you know, for no other reason I was just looking for something to illustrate, to be honest, I wasn't even, I mean, there's a huge sneaker art world out there that I had no idea existed. And so I thought I was doing something original. I really wasn't. So I, you know, I started back with the first pair of Nikes I remember buying were the first air trainer ones, you know, the ones with the black strap across them. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually bought those for my older brother for Christmas. So I saved my money and I didn't even buy them for myself. And, um, we were exchanging names and I, I, got his name and, and I bought those for him. And so, But like the next pair or close to that pair was the Air Max 1s. And so I drew it just kind of in that same style. And then I moved on and kept drawing shoes all the way through, you know, high school and college. Then I was looking to do something a little different. And so I took, I was like, well, which one's my favorite? Which one seems the most versatile as a base for illustrations? So that's when I took the Air Max 1, which I was always thought was really a great shoe and was fascinated with it. And so I took that as a basis and really all I started doing was drawing it in different colorways, putting some pattern and texture on it, and then naming it like it was, again, I really was not that plugged into the sneaker world to know the whole world of sneaker customs. And so I wasn't doing anything that original, like I was just doing stuff that anyone that does a, a custom collab might do like, Hey, let's make this one look like a New York taxi. So we color it black and yellow and put a little checkerboard pattern on it. And, you know, at the time I thought, Oh, well, that's really amazing. Well, it wasn't, wasn't that amazing. But anyway, (laughs) um, I, you know, I did maybe five or six of those and that were just changing the color. And I thought it was going to be that simple. Like I'll go in, I'll spend 30 minutes, I'll change the color, you know, done, post it up. Well, I got to, um, probably, you know, five or six. And I was my workflow is to work from Illustrator then into Photoshop. Well, I was in Illustrator and I started actually playing with the the vector shape and I was fattening up the lines and doing some different things. And um you're familiar with Aaron Draplin, one of one of your favorite designers, one of my favorite designers. Um and I did a shoe that looked like And Aaron sort of in his style, sort of unintentionally. Uh So I thought, well, that, this is kind of cool. Like I'll just make this my Draplin shoe. And so I did it. I posted it. Um, he's been pretty active on his blog. So I sent it to him to see if he thought it was cool and would post it on his blog. And he actually responded on my, um, on my site, put a comment, he ex, his comment actually says, we wear Saucony's, you know, exclamation point, which is funny. Um, I won't hold it against him. Um, yeah, and, he's, and a Port- uh, he's a Portland guy too. That's right, that's right, that's true. Um, so that really took the project in a very different direction, and I thought, well, that was, you know, that was interesting. I, not only did I take it in a different direction, not only did I get the attention of a designer that didn't know who the heck I am, but he actually posted it on his site and I actually got some traffic like, Oh, okay. That's, that's kind of crazy. Let's see if I can replicate that. So for the next two, two and a half weeks, I did um, sneakers versions of the Air Max one that were an homage to all of my favorite kind of contemporary artisan designers. So I would pick what I thought was the most seminal kind of piece from that person to me personally. And I would try to figure out, what makes that tick. And then I would illustrate in that style. So as someone who was just diving back into illustration, that was really great for me because you know I could kind of learn something from picking apart the style and trying to reimagine it. Um so I was learning. Then I would sort of tweet it out to that person. And you know, nine times out of ten that person saw it as the compliment that I hoped it was. And they would, you know, retweet it. So and then would point it back to my site. So again, I was Learning, I was changing the direction of the project and I was getting some eyeballs on my project. And so I did that for about two weeks. I started to feel like, you know, I don't want to just be completely imitative. That's not what I want this project to be. So I finished the project, finished that section of the project with um, Nick Felton, who's, you know, known for like these amazing data, personal data visualizations. Um, And so I finished the project with a piece that was, was a shoe that was full of all these facts about how much time I'd spent on it so far, how many artists I'd put, uh, in it and sort of used his, used his, uh, aesthetic as a way to wrap up that section. Then I just dove in with no plan of, all right, well now all bets are off. Like I can do anything I want. Like it's not just changing color and then giving it a funny name or a clever name. I can actually do, I made a rule. I mean, the shoe had to stay in the middle of the page. It was a side profile. And I had to fundamentally change the shoe. Like that was the, that was the rule I gave for myself, but now I could kind of do anything. Like I made it, you know, and then I started actually using photography. So I'd make a flyer of like a lost shoe and I'd stick it on a signpost, you know, down in South end here in Charlotte. And I'd take a shot of it and make sure it lined up or I'd make a, you know, a pancake in the shape of the shoe and I'd cut the swoosh in butter or I, you know, make it look like a, crossword puzzle, or I'd make it look like an air freshener in my car. So it was really just became about the exploration of ideas, seeing how far I could kind of push this one thing in what directions I could push it. Um, And so I got to about 50 and I was pretty done with drawing (laughs) shoes. Like I was uh, tired of it. Um, And that, that break was good for me. So I stopped and then I actually picked it back up. Um, and I got to about 60 and around that time I started to see a bunch of design books doing really well on Kickstarter. So, um, the, uh, designing Obama book about the, um, yeah, yeah all the, all the graphic design around the Obama campaign that took off and did crazy. You know, obviously mine's not as universally appealing as that, but thought, you know, why not? I mean, I've got close to two-thirds of the assets done so people will have an idea of what the finished product will be I'll call it max 100 now the reason I called it max 100 is because I didn't want to get sued right so I was trying to figure out a way to put max one in there um, so that's kind of where the number 100 came from I mean it's a nice round number so I called it max 100 uh, tribute to the greatest sneaker of all time. Again, trying not to say the name. I do think it's the greatest sneaker of all time, but yeah. again, I was tr- trying to figure out a way to not say uh, any trademark names. And that's, yeah, that was my idea for the Kickstarter project was like, here's what it's going to look like while you're uh, pledging for this project. I'm going to be working on the rest. So I really used project updates in a very active way to show people what I was doing. Yeah, got funded. I was My goal was
0: 30,000 and I ended up getting 40,000. Uh, To produce the book, that's awesome, man. So uh, that was actually, uh, yeah, that was the first time I ever backed anything on Kickstarter. I believe. Awesome. Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you signing the book too when you're in Lexington. Um, Yeah, awesome. But uh, you know, I think that something that's interesting is that you did with this, and, and any any person that understands branding, and especially maybe even people that don't understand branding but understand the visual aesthetics of Nike, is even though you didn't use nike anywhere other than obviously the the obvious (laughs) check on on the shoes you you gave it the Nike look, you know, by using like Futura and like the orange and the blacks and things like yeah. that. So, I mean, you flip through the book and it's like, well, this, this looks like it actually came from Nike. <laughs> like a Nike, the page, uh, I got one in front of me here. So like you flip a couple pages in and you got like, you know, 100 inspired interpretations of the greatest sneaker of all time. And like, you know, it's overlaid on or, uh, white type on orange. And it's like a Nike, it reminds me of the old shoe boxes. So was right, that, yeah. were you actually doing that purposefully?
1: Yeah. I mean, originally I thought about playing off the colors of the, um, you know, the original Air Max one was, uh, white gray and they're what they call university red. So that was my original idea was to maybe use the colors of that, but you know, the orange and gray has become kind of the, the signature colors for Nike over the years. So I wanted to play off of that. Obviously the future of Bold, condensed is, you know, the face that they've been using forever, uh, typographically. So, yeah, I mean, that was very intentional. And then the slip case of, so I produced some, I, in hindsight, from a production standpoint, I should have produced them all with slip cases because it ended up being a big pain in my butt, but. I produced the slipcase to look, you know, sort of harken back to a shoe box, um, one of their more classic looking shoe boxes. So it was primarily orange with some gray. And then I did a little label on there that kind of looked like a label on a shoe box. So yeah, that was, that was very intentional on my part to sort of reference a lot of the classic visuals uh, of the shoe packaging.
0: So, so you did some of the sort of pretend branding work for Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's that, bef- that was before this, right?
1: Yeah. So that was actually, you know, back when I was saying I was kind of frustrated with my job and such, that was the first thing I did. So I was in uh, a Dunkin' Donuts near my office and I used to get like an iced coffee every morning. Uh, they had like a, iced coffee for a dollar deal. And that's how they get you hooked. So I like went in for that and then started drinking iced coffee every day. So they had, we're doing the 60th anniversary campaign and it was, uh, some of it was kind of cool and some of it was really crummy. And I just was really low and kind of like, Oh man, I don't like what I'm doing. And I thought, well, this would be, you know, I sit around and watch TV every night instead of doing that. Why don't I work on this as a personal project. So do my version of this, you know, I think designers are good about kind of like complaining about the world around us. And, you know, I wasn't curing cancer or anything, but it felt good to kind of like, rather than just say, this sucks actually put my money where my mouth is and say, could I have done any better? It was almost like a personal challenge. And um, so that, that project, I, I just dove in and did all kinds of stuff. I did a mascot. I did Packaging, I did apparel, I did, you know, in-store graphics. And around that time, again, I was sending I sent it out to a few blogs and I sent it out to um brand new, which is a great rebrand uh blog run by Armin Vitt and his wife. And um it was around, I guess it was in March, and so he was in his second or third year of doing this April Fool's rebrand where he would do kind of a humorous rebrand. Uh, intended to fool people into thinking it was real. And he was behind that year. And he's like, Hey, I I don't have anything going for this year. Can you, can I use this for my, for my site? And he said, I'll credit you after it's all over. Uh, I think the year before they had done a fake rebrand of Ford, uh, maybe the first one they did that Sterling brands did, I think. So I was like, yeah, that'd be great. So we he concocted like a little backstory where he wanted me to put a post on my site about being approached to do the mascot so that if people track me down like back or he could link out to it on the original article and say, you know, like he was getting pieces of information from different places. So it was pretty brilliant. And uh, it launched April fools and it actually got a lot of people. This was like probably before the web was completely saturated with the April fools thing where everybody, nobody trusts anything anymore on you know, <laughs> right. April 1st. Um, <laughs> we were still in the the time when people actually believed things. And um, yeah, so that went up and uh, was really well received. And the next day he was really generous and posted a nice credit to me. And uh, again, as a designer that was looking to try to create more opportunity for myself at that time, it was great because it sent a bunch of traffic my way. I actually had a call with... Duncan's digital agency, like the very next day, because they had seen it. And, um, the restaurant project that I ended up getting, you know, the retainer for that's how they found me was they, so they were searching the owner of that restaurant concept. His father used to be the CEO of Dunkin' donuts. And so he, uh, was he said, Hey dad, have you seen this Duncan work. It's really cool. You know, I love what you guys are doing. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And that's how he first heard my name. And that's how he first saw my work. And so when it was time to, for him to hire a designer, he he sort of sought me out. So, so that was my first taste of kind of like the power of the internet to create opportunity. Like it was a whole new world for me, but it was like, Oh my gosh, like the world is flat. You know, we're connected. People from anywhere can find you. Um, if you put your work out there and it, you know, it gets a little traction.
0: Yeah. So, so that was, uh, I mean, you were sort of grinding away in, in Charlotte and, uh, is was, was that your moment where it's say where uh, you would say that it kind of put you on the map?
1: Uh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, again, I didn't even have a a site up like I would say nobody outside of my close circle of friends, you know, knew what I did for a living or knew who the heck I was from a design standpoint. Um, And then suddenly I have my my little Squarespace, simple Squarespace site. I mean, I'm not a web guy, so I used Squarespace. I still use Squarespace uh, and I put that up you know, maybe i had 10 visitors to my site, you know, yes. from, it was probably all like web crawlers and my mom and stuff like that. Um, and so suddenly this, you know, brand new thing hits and I have like, you know, 15,000 people a day for like three days looking at my work. So wow. um, yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. And so for sure that got me a little traction that got me, you know, it's all about starting to create connections and so I actually did a, re, a rebrand the next year with Armin as well for Home Depot, but that one didn't uh, get as much play. And I think the whole rebrand thing had started to play itself out a little bit, so.
0: Yeah, so so the reason uh, why, I've, why I asked you that and then also uh, talking about the Max 100 project was these, these two projects uh, actually led to work for those specific clients, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the Duncan thing... I didn't get a ton of work from them. I, I, uh, I got a call from them. We tried to make something happen. Nothing happened. I ended up actually doing work for the, one of their agencies like a year later. Um, but yes, that led to like a fully paying project. And then the max 100 thing, I mean, the first result of that was that's how Facebook found me, you know, oddly enough. So, Facebook has got an in, in-house kind of small design team at the time. And they're, they've are they got this fairly defined style, uh, probably not a huge customer-facing style, but they've, they've created this style sort of in-house. And um, they're looking to expand their design team, but they're not wanting to necessarily hire. So they're just looking for an illustrator. And so Ben Barry out out at Facebook was like, well, this guy's doing a project where he's copying a different style every day. So certainly he could work in our style. So that was my first contact with Facebook. So I freelanced with Facebook off and on for like a year and a half before going out there on that contract. So that was my first sort of taste of that leading to something, but yeah, the project with Nike. So I guess it was probably, you know, everybody always asks. That's the first question they ask me: like, is Nike cool with this? Are they okay? Have you heard from them? Like, what's going on? And uh, up until that time, you know, all I could really rely on was well, you know, like thirty people from Nike backed my Kickstarter project. So that's kind of cool. Like they know, <laughs> they know, they know about it, and nobody seems to be uh, upset. And. You know, I think Nike has a culture of supporting people that sort of come around their properties. And if you're respectful and I was very careful, I'm, you know, I'm not making shoes. I'm not making apparel. I'm not making anything that they could see as competitive. Like I was very careful to stay away from that. And so I really hope they'd see it in the way that they saw. I mean, I'm a I'm a guy in a small market making a thousand books. So I kind of thought I don't think they're going to get that upset about it. Um, and it was, you know, for me, it was kind of a love letter to them. It was kind of a, an homage to this product and to them as a brand. And I think that's the spirit that they took it in and they took it in the spirit of it inspiring somebody. And, um, for a long time, I just kind of didn't hear anything officially from anyone there. Um, there was one guy there that said, Hey, I have a neighbor that is good friends with Tinker Hatfield. If you get me a, um, you know, some of these in printed form, this was before the book was made. I can get it to him. So I sent him a couple of like blurb books. I don't know if it ever made it. Then another guy from Nike said, Hey, uh, you know, he was in like the, this guy was in human resources or something. And he said, Hey, really love the project. Um, I can get a book to tinker. Do you, you know, I can get a book to tinker, to Mark Parker and to Phil Knight, send me three books and I'll, I'll get it in their hands. So I was like, okay. Um, So I sent um, sent those three things. Obviously, I never heard from Phil. Don't know if he got it. Never heard from Mark Parker. Don't know if he got it. But Tinker actually sent me a really nice email. So he got the book, got the print I sent him sent me an email, just said, hey, you know, really appreciate the project. It's very cool, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that was really, you know, exciting to hear from. That's awesome, man. The, did, you know, the guy that actually designed the original shoe. And his, did you, you know, print,
0: print that thing out and frame it? <laughs> I don't. I haven't saved, <laughs> but yeah, I haven't done that. So
1: uh, so jumping forward to the Nike thing. So like, you know, the, the Max 100 project was over. I had coincidentally like just finished selling out all the books. So it took me... You know the kickstarter project took like 350 of the books and then i had like probably 50 that i sent out to various people as promotions or giveaways and so i had about 600 books to sell and it took me about a year to sell all of those so i had just kind of sold out and that's when i got an email from nike this was you know late in the year right before the holidays and said hey we've got this cool project we want you to work on it was on their digital team and so It took you know probably two to three months of just back and forth where they'd go away for you know two two weeks at a time and they were trying to figure out what was going to happen on their end and we were dealing with trying to figure out pricing and uh so that process was slow moving but uh, eventually we agreed on a price and a scope and so i was doing the assignment was basically to do what i had done for my project but at the time they were releasing four of the classic Air Max silhouettes. So the Air Max 1, 90, 97 and 95 all in uh, engineered mesh. So they were applying new materials to classic silhouettes, reinventing these shoes. And so the whole theme of the campaign was reinvention. So they wanted me to do seven illustrations of each in similar fashion to what I had done for my Max 100 project. So that was that was the assignment. And that project
0: took about, I think it was about two to three months. Very cool, man. So would you say that um, to get work from like a Nike? I I think that's that's the dream client for any freelance designer. Well, probably any designer, period, Uh, even people that aren't even necessarily into sports. And simply just because of their design sensibilities and, and the quality work that they put out let's, let's kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive on these side projects. I know that you give some talks around the country as far mm-hmm. as like the importance of them and stuff. So I, I'd like to kind of get you to talk a little bit more about that and, and how these things lead to sort of getting known. Would you say that these side projects in today's internet are, you have a better shot of getting known through doing these types of side projects than doing actual client work?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've got a, you know, I come at it from a couple angles. You know, one, when I talk about it, uh, I always feel a little weird because um, when I back up and look at what I did, there was never this master plan. So I really try to not feel like I'm selling people a one, you know, a one, two, three steps to doing exactly what I did. Cause I don't really know what I did. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, oh, okay, well, here's what I did. Here was my plan. And right. so if you follow my three-step process, you'll do work with Nike. Um, but I think the principles of what I've done or what a lot of other people have done are important and create opportunity that was not there before. So, you know, I think the little uh, the little hidden dirty secret about people saying, do what you love, it'll lead to great things is do what you love, it'll lead to great things, but it better be good because those same people that can see your work can now see lots more people's work. It's it's that double-edged sword of you can now be seen by anybody, but your competition can also be seen by anybody. So it's, it's that idea of opportunity, but also excellence, like what you're doing needs to be either you know, it needs to be a really new thing. It needs to be, um, you know, my project, I think taken individually, I think some of the pieces are great. I think some of them are okay, but it was big. Like I did it a hundred times. So, you know, do something consistently or do something big that no one's done before. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm in Charlotte, which is a, you know, decent sized market, but, you know, 90% of my client work isn't here. Uh, And that's been really important for me Um, Not that you couldn't make a living as an independent designer here in Charlotte, but it would be a very different kind of experience than what I'm having now, where I'm um, working with some bigger brands and getting more opportunity than I would. So, yeah, absolutely. I think we are in an age of... You know, like I said, I think I, a good friend of mine, Matt Lehman, I heard him say it this way. He said, the world is flat. Like it's, you know, you can do something and someone over there can now see it because of the connections that can be made. But I just think you it really needs to be something. It needs to be great in some way, or it needs to be different, or it needs to be something that people haven't seen. But that's been a huge part of you know, I get people hiring me for branding projects and they go, I love your max 100 project. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I'm doing something completely different. Right. But somehow it was a window into how I think, or it was a window into my process or, um, there's something about that, whether it's the tenacity of it or the ability to generate ideas that appeals to people that gives gets my foot in the door, um, with places.
0: Yeah. So there's, I mean, you weren't the first person to illustrate a shoe, right? It's just the scale of this project and the way that you documented the process and sketches and blogged about it and that type of thing, I guess is what you're saying, where they sort of took a, took a deeper dive into your, uh, the way that you thought. So this thing kind of became a, uh, I mean, people are looking at this and they're, and they're going to like, you know, page, uh, you know, whatever. And saying that's the type of style that we want. Has it become kind of a lookbook for you?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it can, that doesn't happen. You know, I think as the project gets older, um, that doesn't happen as much as it used to, but yeah, I mean, that's, that happens a little bit. It doesn't happen a lot. Actually, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. You know, the, the project itself can get my foot in the door as an illustrator, but as an illustrator, you tend to want to be known for something because, you know, the steps of an illustration project are, here's the assignment, Uh, here's how many we want you to do, go. And that's because they come to you and they assume you're working in a certain style. So if you're doing style X, they come to you for style X and they go, you're just worrying about concept and execution. But if somebody comes to you and they don't really know what style they want, then you have to add a whole other phase into the project where it's like, well, what is the finished product going to look like? We like you as an illustrator, but we're not really sure. So it's it's a little bit of a double edged sword because it can add a it can add a whole other level or a whole other step in the process. And but I like that. I mean, I, I'm the kind of person that I, I guess I want to be known for a few styles, but I also really like the idea of. Um, trying to figure it out and do really different things. You know, I find myself exploring lots of different styles and maybe that hurts me in some way, but it also, I think, will give me longevity as a designer because it keeps me more interested. It keeps me more fresh, but that has happened where people go, yeah, I like this one or I like that one. But it has also been, it, it can be a little bit, if someone doesn't hone in on one or two things, but just likes the book as a project and then hires you for an illustration project, you're kind of like starting with I don't really know what I'm doing here. Like I'm not sure what you're asking me to do. So, let's build in a, a a style phase where I actually execute one illustration in three different styles and you pick. And so, sometimes that's good and sometimes it, you know, it can be a detriment.
0: Let's let's uh let's talk about that a little bit. So, let's say I'm a client and I call you up for some illustration work because we're starting to see a lot more illustration work. In sports, I mean, ESPN. Mm-hmm. ESPN is doing a ton of illustration work. Their podcast and their new website is very illustrative. Yeah. Uh, if I'm a client and I call you up, uh, want some illustration work. What what happens next? Sketches, mood boards, that type of thing.
1: Yeah. So originally, what I would say is, you know, sounds great. What's the budget? What's the timeline? If that's all kind of in line, then I say could you take a look through my, if they haven't done this already, could you take a look through my work and maybe reference a few things that you think are relevant to this project? So nine times out of 10, they've already seen my site and that's not a major undertaking, but to have a little bit of direction, uh, I, I'd say an example of this, it wasn't a big project, but there's a really cool um, soccer magazine called Howler magazine. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> yeah,
0: with it. I am familiar um, did you but, work with you know, Robert Lee or Robert Priest and Grace Lee there when they were there? Uh,
1: I don't remember the name. I'm really bad with names. There was a a younger guy that was um, in the middle of a move. He was moving from Brooklyn to somewhere else, but I think he was staying on with the magazine. Okay. But as an example, like they didn't really reference anything specifically in my work. And so I did something for them that was a little bit different than probably anything I had done. And again, I don't think it was groundbreaking. They were just little spot illustrations, but that's an example of someone going, I just kind of like the way you think. I kind of like visually what you do. So kind of do whatever you want. And so I produced sketches, the sketches got approved. And then I did one and said, do you like this? as a visual direction. And they said, yeah, that's cool. So uh, that's an example uh, an example of how the versatility can actually help is uh, I did a project for Pinterest where they wanted to do like a two minute motion piece, fully illustrated, no voiceover, and a phase of that project built in. It was a separate, treated as a separate project with a separate cost was, and dictated by them was, let's do, let's explore a range of styles. And they had pulled together mood boards of three completely different styles. They'd even named them like it was, you know, I I don't remember, but it was like these three different names, three different completely different moods. And so I did a page of illustrations of those three styles. And that's where my versatility uh, can help me a little bit in the illustration world. But typically with editorial, it's the opposite. You know, they want the tight deadline. They need a sure thing. Like, I like this guy's work. Let's plug it into this article or Here's an article with this subject matter whose work applies to that. Um, I've done a lot of exploded type over the years. So this idea of like old automotive diagrams, like these exploded diagrams with the screws and parts coming out. And I stumbled on doing type that way a few years ago. And that's something I get called on a lot to do for editorial because it's very specific. Mm -hmm. They know what they're going to get. And it's very easy for them to plug it in. So Wired is doing an article on European supercars and they want to do a an opening treatment, you know, done in that style. So that's, you know, really simple because they can just say, "Here's the here's the type, here's what we want, send us a sketch. So, you know, some of that is my struggle as trying to be a uh brand and identity guy half the time and an illustrator half the time. You know, if I was an illustrator full time, maybe I would have a few styles that were m- more developed or fleshed out. I don't know, but I kind of like being able to do both. Like I really enjoy branding and I enjoy illustration.
0: Very cool. So uh, uh, kind of an interesting tie in here in reference to the the world, especially the internet and design world being so flat, is episode twelve. I interviewed Robert Priest and Grace Lee, who are the uh, part of the co founding team of Howler Magazine. Nice, and, and they went on to found Eight by Eight Magazine, which I don't know if you've seen that one yet. I haven't. Huh. Yeah. So so check out Eight by Eight Magazine. Mm. Uh, that's that's sort of uh, that one's f- full of it's it's. Very illustrative. That actually might be a. I'm gonna, I I'm, might make an introduction, yeah, <laughs> uh, if, cool. if you want to that one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how did you? So, so, you don't have an illustration rep, right? Like, you do everything through yourself,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I think I, um, I have toyed with that, uh but I'm staying pretty busy doing what I'm doing. You know, every time I start to freak out and go, Oh, I'm slowing down, you know, I need to get an illustration rep, you know, some project comes in. Um, I think a huge part of that has been my sort of West coast connection through Facebook. So I do, a, I do a lot of illustration for brands, which I actually prefer. I mean, I like editorial illustration as well. The budgets tend to be lower and the timeline Tends to be quicker, which can actually be a good thing. But so it's just a different animal. But I've really enjoyed doing illustration for brands because with my branding background, I think I enjoy making that connection from, you know, between the brand and the illustrated assets. The projects tend to be a little bigger and meatier, a little more long term. So not to say that obviously a rep could get me that kind of work, but I just, uh, fortunately from some of the personal relationships and connections I've had so far, that kind of work has come to me through those relationships. So yeah, I mean, I've definitely toyed with the idea. Uh, I think if I were to do that, maybe, I don't know, maybe they would want me to be more full-time illustration, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. they might. But I've never really come to a, come to a decision on it. They might want
0: you to pick a style too.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. I, I actually just saw, um, Uh, Loda Neiman, who's a really great, I probably butchered her name. I think I left a syllable on her last name, but uh, she's a really great illustrator working out of Brooklyn. And I saw her at a conference down in Memphis recently. And um, she, I mean, just freakishly amazing illustrator in all these different styles. Like I was blown away because I'd never seen those styles before because she's known very much for one specific style. So she showed all these styles and then she told the story of going to see this, um, this illustration rep who wanted to bring her on. And the, the guy said, I really love your work, but I can't sell you. Like you're, you're unrepresentable because you've got so many different things you're doing. I need you to hone in on one thing. And so she has and she's amazing at it and it's really good and she also coincidentally has a whole side where she does brand and identity so there's lots of different ways to make it work for sure
0: so so as you not having a rep and as you sort of become popular in in the design world and especially with in the client on the client side and people kind of you you become in demand right which means ideally you want your prices to scale up how how did you handle that side of the world kind of being new to the this sort of freelance full-time side like when it's like you know now you're starting to get work from facebook and all these big brands the budgets are bigger you know right that type of thing
1: uh yeah i mean pricing i hate pricing it continues to be probably my biggest struggle um it's just really difficult and i have um you know, gotten big projects like the Nike project. I lost sleep over how do I price this thing? I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I called like actually uh, Adam Garcia, who used to work at Nike, amazing designer out of Portland. I don't don't know him except through Twitter, but I said, hey man, can you help me here? Like, here's the project. Not asking for numbers, but like, what do you think? Uh, Tad Carpenter and another amazing illustrator who's done a ton of work for brands. Just, hey, what do you think? Um, so I've had, you know, I think you find if you ask for help, people in the design world tend to be pretty generous. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a real struggle because they're, so I talk to these guys that do this kind of pricing all the time. And even they say, yeah, it's hard. There's no system. Like there's no consistent. So I have this not so foolproof kind of three step process that I've developed for myself. So what I do is I, I pull a gut number, like, what do I think? Just in my gut, do I think this is worth? Um, based on the client, based on yeah, all the stuff that's rattling around in my head from past projects, and so that's kind of a number. And then I kind of break it down, sort of hourly, like how much. I don't charge hourly; I charge a flat fee. But you know, if this project, worst case scenario, this takes a month, you know, what is a month of my time worth? And so that's a number. And then I use the Graphic Artist Guild Handbook, which is as close to an industry standard as I've found. Um, and I look it up and I try to price it based on there. And shockingly enough, typically, those three numbers aren't that far apart oftentimes. Um, and I try to go somewhere in there. You know, what I've tried to not do is figure out the client. Like I've tried to not, because you can't do that. Like if they, unless they give you a number, you'll drive yourself crazy. Like, Oh, what are they expecting? And what do they think? So pricing has been difficult. You know, I would say go high because, uh, you can always work your way down. Um, but if you kind of try to go in low in the beginning, you've got, they're going to probably come back at you and try to get you down a little bit in most cases. So if you really get sheepish on that first number, then you're boxing yourself in, So, you know, the toughest email I sent was that, you know, my estimate for that Nike project, because it was, you know, my first numbers were ridiculously high because that's what they asked for. They said, Hey, we want full buyout on 28 images. I'm like, well, that's uh, you want global usage, full buyout on 28 custom images. Like that's a lot of money. right? (laughs) That's a high number. And, uh, I'm like, there's no way they're going to pay this, but I'm like, that's what they said. So, you you know, the fear is they're going to laugh at you and never talk to you again. Like that's yeah. the- And there um, goes your
0: dream client down the exactly, drain. Exactly, <laughs> right, exactly.
1: So believe me, when I sent that email and didn't hear back for a couple of days, I didn't sleep real well. But <laughs> they came back and said, you know, yeah, I can't do that, let's try to, you know, let's try to cut here and cut there. Um, and this isn't just with Nike, this is with, you know, all clients. Um, And then you come back with another number and maybe that's too high or too low. And then you eventually settle on something and you decide if that's worth your time. So pricing's tough. And I think I've stopped looking for kind of the magical standard and just try to do the best I can, but that as an independent designer and a business owner that, you know, I would be very, that's the part of having an agent or a rep that I would love, you know, to have somebody negotiate that stuff, deal with that stuff, uh, would be great. But, um, Yeah, I think I'm getting better at it. And I'm, you know, the, the challenge for me is to kind of take the emotion out of it and stop trying to figure them out. Cause if they're not going to give me a number, I can't figure them out. I can only price it what I think it's worth. Right. I mean, that's the best I can do. And so I find myself getting to that point faster than I used to.
0: I know you have a a meeting coming up, but real quick, I want to touch on some of the stuff, uh, design entrepreneurship and the types of things that you're doing, that you've been doing for the designer fund, Mm -hmm. uh, the bridge program. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the designer fund is and bridge and that type of thing?
1: Yeah. So, um, through some contacts I have, I had out at Facebook. So Ben Blumenfeld was the, um, design manager at Facebook when, um, uh, when I started doing freelance with them. And by the time I had gotten out there and done that 90 day contract, um, he had moved on. And so after Facebook, uh, I think he was kind of looking for, you know, his next thing. And so the designer, the designer bridge is part of the designer fund. So the designer fund is really exists to encourage entrepreneurship uh, in the design world. So they believe that designers should be entrepreneurs as much as in any other sector. Obviously they're out in San Francisco. That's the perfect place for something like that. So the designer bridge is uh, a program that people apply to. Uh, I'm not completely sure what the application process entails, but it's, it's applications uh, that are submitted and they select a small group, um, based on the people that were at my workshop, you know, there was probably 25 to 30 people there. So I would imagine the full group's a little bigger than that. And so for for a set period of time, they really just kind of shepherd this group of people. They have you know great speakers in that give uh, workshops. Their space is, you know, crazy cool. Um, it's near, uh, the stadium out there where the giants play, it's kind of in that side of town. Um, and just a really cool space, a very cool environment, very relaxed. And so my experience was they asked me to come out and, um, lead a workshop, which was really challenging for me. I've never done a workshop. Um, typically when I speak, it's much more story-based, it's much more showing work and process. And I find that I'm a pretty intuitive designer. Like I, I feel like I make good decisions, but I couldn't necessarily tell you why I did what I did. And so that was a really interesting challenge for me to try to figure out how to do a workshop. Because when you do a workshop, you have to pick apart something and then you have to teach that knowledge specifically to somebody and you have to get them to do something based on what you're talking about. So I really enjoyed it. Um, I t- talked about, you know, talking about the Max 100 project, I talked about the idea of series and repetition and, and creating limitations and how those limitations actually make your work stronger. So how, how we as designers need rigid rules to kind of push against to make our work better. Um, and so it was a, you know, 40 minutes of sharing my work kind of 20 minutes of sharing this idea of, of repetition and design. And I used a couple of examples. Um, Picasso has a series of where he drew a bull and it was basically what I did for max 100. He did it first, obviously. Uh, but he took a bull and he just drew it over and over again. And it, it was a series of abstractions. And so the idea of if you hone in on one thing and just do it over and over and just try to make small changes, how that, um, that leads to new places that you might not have found before. Uh, And also a piece of music that was written by Bach um, where he took the same structure and he wrote like 30 variations on it. So it was the same underpinning of this piece of music and then 30 variations. And so I played some of that. I came across as really smart sounded intelligent. It was great, Uh, (laughs) but uh, but, uh, no, it was a really, and it was, it was, so then my, then I had, I give them an assignment at the end. And so I gave them a sort of kit of parts, uh, shapes, and colors. And they had to build a series of personal flags, uh, design a series of personal flags in a short period of time. So they're a great group. They have tons of um, really good speakers come in. And uh, most of the people that are in the group are working designers, but they're either right out of school or sort of three to five years, probably less than five years of experience. And so the program is sort of ongoing education. It's also connecting them with internships, connecting them with jobs, connecting them with companies. So um, yeah, it was a, I mean, it was a good opportunity. I wasn't really intimidated to do it, but I'm glad I did it
0: for sure. Very cool. And I, I just want to let our listeners know that we should all begin thinking outside of services. This is, uh, you know, from the product side, we see what's happening in Silicon Valley. I, I think that there are a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity in the sports world to come up with great digital products and maybe even physical products. Matt, what would you say your dream project would be in sports outside of the Nike thing?
1: Um, Wow. I mean, you know, like, like everyone else, I would love to be involved in com- some kind of a rebrand for a team. You know, I love probably my favorite sport to follow is the NFL would love to do. You know, I was really sad, although I like what they did with the Charlotte Hornets would have been great to stay local with that. <laughs> would love yeah, to be yeah. in that. I know that's not how that works, but um, yeah, I mean, I just I really uh, would love to be involved in some kind of a, a branding project, or you know what I did for Nike was great. Just get coming in and kind of taking a particular angle on uh, one facet of the company is very satisfying. But yeah, I mean, that'd be great. You know, when I went out on my own, I had a good piece of advice. Of you know, and the the guy said a guy that owned his own business, a good friend of mine said, figure out what it means for you to be successful. So you'll know when you get there, because I think it's easy to always like be looking towards the next thing. Like what's the next thing. And I think sometimes we get a measure of success and we don't even stop to be grateful kind of for where we've gotten to or appreciate that we we've gotten something that we, that was a goal. So one of the things that obviously beyond making a good living for my family and supporting them with what I do, um, one of my goals was to be hired kind of for who I am and for the way I see things. Like that was honestly really important to me. Like I didn't want to just be another cog in the machine. I had been that for a long time, you know, working for the company I worked for. And so, yeah, I mean, I love sports. I'd love to be involved in something where someone maybe sees a unique point of view that I have and really values that and, and wants to bring that in. But, um, I actually got approached, it was like my first year on my own. I got approached by the NFL, someone in the NFL to, to uh, be involved in a project and it didn't work out. And that was, pretty heartbreaking. I'd only been on my own for, you know, a couple months. I was like, Oh, this is how it goes. Like the NFL calls you up and you work on projects. Like this is what freelance <laughs> life is like. And, uh, you know, talk about freaking out, trying to price a project. Like how do you price, you know, working on an NFL logo, but, um, for various reasons it did not happen, but I certainly appreciated the opportunity and would love to be involved. Um, yeah. the little Panthers project I did was my way of kind of like pretending that I did a I did a sports rebrand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it, it's interesting. It, it kind of uh, tends to default back to making connections in this world too. And, and uh, the Charlotte Hornets, uh, that thing, since it's that comp or the uh, organization, Michael Jordan has such a high ownership in it. That thing sort of ran through the Jordan brand, which yeah. got, which actually Darren Crescenzi worked on. Through his Nike connections and also uh, Rodney Richardson from Rare Design, Th- those two work work together yeah. on that with with the in house team. So I saw that I hate them both. <laughs> <laughs> They're so both guests him, on the show, man. Yeah, Go back and hear that, that. <laughs> next time you see them. No, I love I love both of their uh,
1: Darren particularly. I love what Rare does as well. But I remember seeing Darren's work a few years back. I think I had originally seen uh, limited edition packaging he did for a pair of Roger Federer shoes. It was just you know really yeah. really amazing and so. So, uh, yeah, yeah those are awesome. huge respect for his work. He's done some really great stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, Matt, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show. It was good to catch up with you again. And hopefully we can kind of, uh, do this again sometime.
1: Yeah. Honored to do it. I really appreciate you, uh, let me ramble on and uh, hope hopefully folks find it
0: interesting. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, my next guest is the founder of Sports Design Collective Poster Rises. You can probably, you've probably seen some of the work of this crew all over Instagram and around the NBA. Uh, this will be the first guest from outside the U.S. Aussie Tyson Beck will be joining the show. Tyson has worked with the NBA, MLB, NFL, UFC, Nike. Uh, it's currently doing some work for Topps, the, the sports card company. You can Catch up with Tyson on Twitter at Tyson Beck designs and see the posterizes team at posterizes.com. Big thanks again to Matt Stevens for taking the time to join the show. You can follow him on Twitter, Matt at Matt Stevens, CLT That's Stevens with a V. And CLT, uh, an abbreviation for Charlotte. Boy, that's my assumption, Matt, right? <laughs> it yes, it is. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> Matt another, Stevens was already taken.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another reminder for those catching up on shows that might have missed it, halftime is coming at the beginning of the new year. So be on the lookout for it. Halftime is a 20 minute solo podcast with me uh, between the weeks of interviews where I'll be discussing freelance, professionalism, and more. Uh, be sure to follow myself on Twitter at T Adam Martin, as well as the show at Makers of Sport. Please take time to rate, like, or write a review of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever application you happen to be listening in. Uh, You can also leave a comment at the website, uh, as well as directly on this episode's page at makersofsport.com. Until next time, have a good week.